Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central rungs to our writing manifesto. Rung the first to help you write more, rung the second to help you write better and rung the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I speak to authors uh, and writers and poets and playwrights and people in the publishing industry and a bunch of story adjacent people and sometimes neuroscientists and psychologists and linguists and all sorts of people anyone I can think of really who might conceivably have something to say about this strange thing we do writing and making books and stories and also sometimes I talk a little bit myself about what I'm up to and sometimes I look at listeners first pages you probably know all this if you don't welcome Hello, I'm Tim. I sound like this. It's really lovely to have you here today. And today I am talking to the author Kieran Pym. And I wanted, I've wanted for a while, and I've sort of started doing over the past few episodes, chats with non-fiction authors. I've spoken to plenty of non-fiction authors before uh, in previous shows. Uh, or, you know, even novelists who or poets who also dabble in non-fiction. Uh, you may or may not know that I do poetry, fiction and non-fiction myself. But, I, you know, I've been because I've just completed a non-fiction project, I was really interested in speaking to people who've done that, the various things that that can mean. Non-fiction is a massive area, obviously, isn't it? You know, it doesn't it doesn't tell you very much at all but I wanted to speak to lots of different people and hear their different approaches to different types of books because I, I just think it's a whole other area that you know certainly when I get first pages to do on the podcast I don't I don't think I've ever looked at the first page of someone's non-fiction and it requires just as much craft as fiction uh, and and there's many many areas of crossover especially in terms of style and just basic principles of composition but then there's loads of things that are different but I think we can benefit even if we are fiction writers and we never ever ever plan to write non-fiction we're certainly going to be non-fiction readers that will come up in our re research and certainly cross-training is such a a force multiplier when it comes to your writing whatever format you're writing in you know I think reading and writing a little poetry is almost certainly going to make you better on the line with your sentences I think dabbling in a bit of fiction is almost certainly going to make your non-fiction better and more vivid and gonna make you better at conveying what you want to convey whatever that is you know bringing it alive for the reader it doesn't necessarily have to be super lyrical uh but it, it's just so useful it's so so unbelievably useful to be able to deal with those things and if you know if you if you write if you if you write fiction being able to plumb non-fiction whether it's you know your own life or the lives of other people or you know any area that you're researching is really useful as well to transform that into use it as a kind of like grist for the fictional mill I think is really really useful so I hope for everyone this is useful but I'm pursuing it because I'm particularly interested in it at the moment although I'm kind of finished so in a way I'm at the stage of wanting to reflect on what I've done 
maybe this would have been more useful at the beginning of the project than the end. But I, you know, I, I wanted to speak to a variety of different nonfiction authors, and Kieran Pym is someone I've known for years now. I think we decided it was about thirteen years we've known each other, and he wrote a biography on someone called David uh, Litvinoff. Now I hadn't, who I hadn't heard of um, before. Uh, before reading the biography, uh, which is called Jumping Jack Flash, but David Litvinoff is a kind of legendary, semi-legendary 1960s society figure in the kind of London underworld and in the London... I mean, society figure is wrong. I mean, this is kind of like society stroke entertainment, like the kind of celebrity world. David Litvinoff was a notorious spinner of tales, a self-mythologizer. He was somebody who liked to create an aura around himself and was known. And I think this is uncontroversial and, and fairly well established. I don't think anyone would contest this as a, as a brilliant raconteur. But um, because of that, it wasn't always clear what stories about him were true and which ones were embellished and which ones were entirely made up and several accounts of the same event. And uh, Kieran kind of touches on this, well, more than touches on it, you know, it becomes part of the uh, fabric of his book. Uh, many, many accounts of the same event change depending on who's telling them. But a surprising amount of the stuff is true. And so he kind of went on this journey. We, we talk about the his ambivalence about the word quest, but on a journey to to find out who David Litvinoff was and what his what 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 you know is it possible to get at a truth behind somebody who various people had assured him it was impossible to write a biography of and we talk about writing biographies and what that means and how his journalistic training how, how Kieran's journalistic background helped him write the book and what it means to write a biography where you never really know what you're getting into until it's kind of too late you don't know what you're taking on until you are so deep into the project that you've already put so much time in that it would be difficult to give up that's the slightly bananas thing about doing any non-fiction project that isn't that isn't for something i mean there are of course non-fiction projects that are very clearly defined and, and and simple if you're writing a guide to how to complete super mario brothers 2 for example uh, i i plucked that out of the air because for some reason that was the f first non-fiction book that i could think of that came to mind that i do actually own uh, it's obviously a very old one um but clearly that isn't going to take years of research and tracking people down and doing first person interviews and i wouldn't have thought uncovering layer upon layer because it's quite a clearly defined brief whereas capturing a human and 
telling their story and also putting it into context and talking about the era and making sure that contemporary readers understand what's going on and every time they interact with somebody else that's a new character that you potentially have to flesh out and establish and what what are we talking about here all of these things take time and and the same is true if you're taking a non-human subject like i don't know the subject of grief for example there's so many ways you could attack that and so many books even if they're taking something that's theoretically a very small thing like i don't know the history of the cricket bat that ends up potentially being a history of technologies of sport of colonialism of trees and wood of craftsmanship of politics you know i i can imagine though i know nothing about cricket that, that there are so many ways you could dive into that that would bring up stories that would bring up anecdotes that would bring up tales of international relations maybe you'd end up talking about the england versus australia bodyline tactic that nearly caused a trade embargo you know if you go from cricket bat to cricket to everything about britain to everything about every cricket playing country and empire and physics gosh you know there's you know there's so many ways that even something ostensibly simple can expand out so if you're dealing with a human and especially one as um you know i think by his own design as nebulous and um, mercurial is a word we use as David Litvinov um, then you're going to have a a tricky old time and we, you know, we talk about that and I think I enjoyed this interview for a number of reasons but I think once we get into talking about the book there's loads for you to glean from this and uh, Kieran has some great he'll talk about towards the end he talks about the technique of foot stepping when you're writing non-fiction and I think that's a great piece of advice whether you're writing non-fiction or you could easily apply it to fiction uh, by making the necessary changes you know in terms of your fictional characters if there's a location in real life or if there are kind of equivalents in the world so i think you'll find all of these things that we talk about really useful we just talk about give you some insight into the process of you know selling a non-fiction book and how you go about writing it i won't go on any more than this i'm kind of conscious that i i could ad lib for ages and i'd like you to be able to get into it and have a listen because um we go into these things in quite a bit of detail in a way that i think most conversations around non-fiction uh, are you know understandably about the subject and we do talk about that you know someone to, comes on to talk about their book they talk about the subject that they wrote the non-fiction book about not the process of writing the non-fiction book and um, we do both in, in in our chat today so not only is it interesting because you'll hear a bit about David Litmanoff and you know this area that you probably don't know much about but at the same time it's worth you know if, if there's a subject that you're really passionate about or something you're interested in then i think it will get, start giving you the tools about how you might start embarking on what i you know personally think is a kind of pilgrimage and and of course kieran pym says he doesn't he didn't 
intend to write this book initially and it was you'll hear but it was kind of by chance how he felt almost like he was called to write it so I hope and this might sound like it's a kind of curse but uh because of course these books are you know starts to feel like I say when you go on a pilgrimage it's quite you know it can be quite grueling but I think it changes you and what I hope is if you'd never considered writing a non-fiction book that you might listen and the process of listening to this might just get your antennae up you know you might find yourself a bit more receptive and aware of things that interest you and maybe not today but in the future you'll suddenly think huh is that something I'd want to write a book about that you'll just be aware anyway um I hope you enjoy it if you um do like the show and I'll put a link to um, Kieran's book in the show notes, by the way, if you'd like to grab yourself a copy. Uh, and if you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it, go on my coffee page, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. You can drop me a few beans. I really appreciate all of you who have done so. Um, it just genuinely goes to things like site hosting costs and soundcloud hosting and you know my ability to spend time each week putting together one or two episodes a week that's what i'm aiming at tend to come out on monday and or thursday but i'm aiming for at least one episode of death of a thousand cuts every week now and so far i've managed to stick since i've said that i've managed to stick to it uh, but yeah that's it i'm gonna shush now uh have a lovely day i wish you at least that and i hope while you're enjoying your day you also um, learn something and enjoy my chat with kieran pym thanks for um agreeing to do this i'm just going to set up to make sure everything's recording um and then i i do like an introduction uh after i've recorded everything so That'll be the bit where I put everything into context and stuff, if that makes sense. Um, um, but it's just... Uh, I'll just do what I do on most episodes, which is ask a bit about how you got started and then ask a bit about what you've written and then, I guess, pivot towards the end into maybe questions of craft and what other people could you know, kind of glee, abstract, what lessons might be learnable from that. But it, none of it's hard and fast, really. And um, okay. uh, with, you know, they, they they necessarily kind of all sort of bleed into each other a little bit. And yeah. um, if that's all right, um, is, so, is, is, is there anything else that I'd need to mention that also any questions to, you've got to ask before? don't think so no i just cool. thought you know if we just have a class and see if we cover everything you had in mind and then if we don't then you know you can ask me to cover anything else at the end really cool um, oh awesome well yeah. um i guess i, I guess the f oh, i guess the first thing i want to ask then is um is when you first started getting the sense that stories and words were were important gosh okay um how far back do you want to go i mean that's childhood isn't it i think um at a at an early level where you realize stories are becoming important to you because you want to read them so often or you want to have them read to you 
Um, and soon after that, well, if you're at all this way inclined, you find that you want to start telling stories, um, whether it's telling stories to your friends at school or whether it's writing stories, finding that you enjoy writing in lessons at school. Um, I suppose for me, that crystallised probably in my mid-teens when I, I settled on the idea of becoming a journalist, a newspaper journalist, which I wanted to do because it seemed a good way of writing stories, true stories, um, for a living. I, I always liked the idea of writing books as well, but I suppose I thought um, newspaper journalism was a, an interesting way of writing for a living, <laughs> getting a salary. Um, and, you know, it's a fascinating job because you meet so many people. You end up telling so many people's stories. It is pure storytelling day after day. Um, so that's what I did. So after university, I became a reporter on our local newspaper, the Eastern Daily Press. Um, after a couple of years of being a news reporter, which was a really good grounding, um, I went into writing features, which gives you more latitude, more scope for colour and atmosphere. And a lot of what I did was interviewing people, writing whether celebrity interviews or interviews with people from around Norfolk. Um, and I think that gave me some skills that have proved useful in my subsequent career as a non-fiction author. So, yeah. I, 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 I'm I trying to think of a way of phrasing this question that doesn't sound <laughs> so naive that it sounds like I'm taking the mickey, um, but I genuinely mean yeah. it. Which is because I suppose because it's so broad and maybe it's, it's, I'm worrying that it's difficult to answer because it's so because I was going to go, what's it like being a reporter? That was my kind of almost like <laughs> primary school kid question. Mm. But I, I realised, you know, you talk about it and I kind of got the idea of the kind of Daily Planet kind of journalist with a big flashbulb camera and a kind of something tucked into their hat band kind of. Uh, journalism but mm. you know what what you said you're talking to lots of people and what, what does that actually what that, what does that job look like day to day when you're doing okay it? um I think that changed a little over the course of my 13 years that I was a newspaper journalist um as in wave after wave we lost staff to redundancy processes um what it looked like to begin with was a job where you had rather more time and space to write things as you know um in the way that you would want to and it became increasingly stretched and hurried um but what's it look like um i suppose the other thing there is that we were spending we were becoming more and more desk bound as time went on but the best years were the ones where you could go out and you would meet people um you know whether around the county or around the world in fact because what can be a local story doesn't actually have to happen locally it can involve local people um so for example i followed the east anglian regiment soldiers um to basra iraq i spent a few days there reporting on what kind of teenage boys from Deerham and yarmouth and fakenham were doing out on their patrols in iraq um so you know it can be quite exotic it can be absolutely fascinating in that respect but it also gives you a really good flavor for what's going on in the community right before you where you live um 
does that answer it? Do you mean also yeah. in a kind of more day-to-day sense, I suppose? No, no, the, I, I just was I was just interested, like, how you turn... I, I just genuinely don't know, because, you know, I've done magazine features and magazine writing, and obviously when you're doing features, you're a little less reacting to stuff, although sometimes you tie something in with events, mm. but like you say, you've got a little bit more control. But the idea of reporting on news... Mm. I just realised, of course, in the sort of broadest sense, I have an idea how that's done. But I don't know how you go from something happening to a decision being made. We need to report on this to yeah. how you how you go and get the story. Okay. I, I genuinely don't don't know how that happens and how that's put together. Well, in that respect, there's a kind of daily schedule. I, I might be slightly out of date because I haven't been in newspapers for a few years, but I think the same essential format applies that there'll be a newspaper conf- an editorial conference in the morning normally about 10 o'clock where the editors get their heads together and decide having read the morning's newswires and the morning's papers um, they'll decide what the agenda is for the day they'll look at certain things like what court cases are happening that day are there council meetings that evening things like that they'll come out of the conference and they will tell the reporters what they want them to do um, the reporters will then go off and for example go to court or they might be they might be asked to write uh, you know a kind of full page analysis piece on one of the issues of the day um, by kind of mid-afternoon you want to be having that pretty much pinned down so you want to be getting your calls in to the experts that you need to talk to um, in the morning you want to get the ball rolling there um, you know if you're going to court you'll be sitting in court for a fair amount of the day taking notes and then you hurry back and you tell you tell the news editors what what happened what the story is you know as, as you're walking back or heading back from court you want to ha- pretty much have your intro your first line worked out in your head so that when you walk into the newsroom and the, the news editor pounces on you you're not kind of umming and eyeing. You, you, you want that neat encapsulation of what the story is in that introductory line so that you can say to your news editor um, as, in as punchy and pithy and engaging a way as possible what the story is. And then you get on and write it. Um, and then by, well, I guess kind of late afternoon, the sub-editors will start breathing down your neck saying, come on, have you done that yet? Um, uh, how's it coming on? Can you file? And um you file your stuff and, you know, you leave um, at some point in the evening hoping that you might be done for the day, but also aware that then you've probably got the late subs who um, are quite likely to give you a call to check some point of detail. At least this was the case when I was there. I mean, there aren't as many sub-editors now as there used to be. And I know that newspapers are more templated now than they, than they used to be. But I think that gives you an idea anyway. So in that respect, yeah. it's... Um, you know, there's a format, there's a schedule each day that's fairly fairly locked down, but within that, there's enormous scope for variety. What were some of the, can you think of some of the most sort of, um, I suppose, satisfying or rewarding uh, stories that you worked on during your time? Yeah, well, uh, I once interviewed in this, this great up-and-coming writer who wrote a book called We Can't All Be Astronauts. Um, oh, oh, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, I enjoyed that very much. Um uh, I loved writing. I loved writing about writers. You know, before I became a writer myself, I was always interviewing writers because I was so fascinated by the craft. Um, and you know, I remember interviewing you and 
getting a sense of what you were doing when that book came out, which must have been about 15 years ago, I guess. Um, I think, yeah, 13, 13, 13, yeah, 2009, I think. Yeah, okay, right. Um, I mean, authors, I've interviewed lots of, lots of authors, um, some of whom, you know, I just found it a real education to speak with. Um, the obvious question that follows from that is how, and I can't give, you know, very neat summaries of, of how off the top of my head, but Jeff Dyer was one from a non-fiction point of view. I, re I remember interviewing, well, actually, no, I interviewed him about one of his novels, um, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi. Um, Ian McEwan, I've, you know, I, I interviewed him in connection with, with his UEA connections. Uh, that was a good one as well. Um, I interviewed a lot of authors over the years, and I, I, through helping to run the East Anglian Book Awards, I I met a lot of people in the local literary community, if you like, people from UEA. I made a lot of good contacts, um, lots of good publishing contacts through being the books editor on the UDP, um, which all helped me to transition, I suppose, from being a, a newspaper journalist to being a non-fiction author, which was a kind of gradual transition. There was a bit of an overlap. Um, I think I started writing my first book in 2010, and I left the EDP in 2013, having gone part-time for the last couple of years. <laughs> I attempted to establish myself outside in the newsroom and then finally got to the point where um, they were looking to get rid of a load of us again. And I had a book deal for my first kind of full biography, the David Lipfinoff biography at that point. And as I say, they were trying to make people redundant. So I thought, well, it's never a perfect moment, but if not now, when? So I, I took a redundancy payment and took the plunge. And that was, yeah, eight years ago. So, and it's gone okay since then. It's gone pretty well on the whole. Can, can, we, can we then take the plunge mm. and, and jump into talking about um, uh, Jumping Jack Flash, your David Litvinoff uh, biography? Mm. I, I really, I mean, it would be really good to you know i'll get you to set the scene of um who he was and what it was about in just a sec but um i suppose the <laughs> um it, to me mm -hmm. and maybe not because of to you because you've done so much journalism and interviewing people but the idea of taking on a person as a subject mm -hmm. for a book seems impossibly daunting <laughs> <laughs> almost no matter who that person was either they're super famous there's loads about them in which case there's loads of other people have taken a crack at it and you're constantly comparing yourself to them and go well who am i to do this yep. or um they're obs they're obscure in ways that make you think i'm never going to be able to get the information i want who else is going to care about this from, from but me um what made you first want to to write this and what kept you going because to me i'm like it's just such, it seems like such a scary thing and, and admittedly you do play that up in the book as I well that, that this was a daunting subject <laughs> but um i'm just interested to know given all that mm. how you got sucked in and what kept you going okay um well there's a simple answer to the to the beginning of that which was that on holiday in the summer of 2010 i took two books with me to France for a week in which coincidentally 
he featured in, in both of them. One was a book called Journey Through a Small Planet by Emmanuel Lipfanoff, who was David Lipfanoff's older half-brother. And David only features very briefly and tangentially in that um, as a mention by Emmanuel of his, his baby brother, David, being around. This is a memoir of, of the East End in the 1930s, East End of London. Um, the book that really set me going was Rudinsky's Room by Ian Sinclair and Rachel Lichtenstein, which features a whole chapter by Sinclair about his fascination with Litvinoff as a character who seemed to him to parallel David Rudinsky, the main subject of that book, in being kind of equally mysterious and impossible to track down. The way that Sinclair writes about him is so tantalising that um, it really whetted my appetite. And this serendipitous little coincidence between the fact that he featured in, in the only two books I took with me for that week's holiday just made me think, well, that's, that's curious. I like coincidences. You know, I'm, I'm pretty rational on the whole, but every now and then something like that just makes you think, okay, that's, um, that's worth pursuing. That's, uh, particularly because I was so fascinated by what I uh, read um, in the Ian Sinclair chapter. Um, so that sparked my interest. And then the next thing I read was a BFI library critical study of the film Performance by Colin McCabe. Litvinoff was integral to the making of Performance, which was co-directed by Donald Camel and Nick Rogue, but it was based very firmly in ways that I was pleased to be able to detail um, in, in ways that hadn't been shown quite so explicitly before. Uh, it was based really firmly on, on Litvinoff's experiences in the London underworld in the early 1960s. Um, so reading that book, um, McCabe wrote something about him being one of the most extraordinary and mythical characters in 60s London, someone who was almost impossible to track down again. This, th this thing kept coming up about how hard it is to tell this man's story. He sounded so fascinating, so mysterious and mercurial. Whenever people talked about him, it was about that you, you couldn't tell his story. And I must be a masochist or something, but that really appealed to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I wonder actually if there's a certain amount of pleasurable myth-making going on here. It can be quite nice to think that someone is beyond, someone's story is beyond telling. And if there's one thing I learned from journalism, it's that perseverance really can get you a long way. Um, so I started digging around and fairly soon, once I had got a couple of people on board who, once I'd won their trust, they in turn kind of open up a network of further contacts. Then I, I thought, you know, this is going to develop its own moment, momentum. Um, that can either be people who are not necessarily very well known, but are really interesting and well connected. And they can put you in touch with a load of people who will talk once they know that this first person will talk. It can also be someone who is well known. So one of the key interviews for me in that respect was Eric Clapton, who I interviewed pretty early. He writes in his autobiography that Litvinoff was one of the most extraordinary men he ever met, the most colourful character I ever met or something like that. And once I got the interview with Eric Clapton, it kind of 
it made quite a lot of other people think, okay, well, this guy obviously means business and it looks like his book will probably get published. I wouldn't be wasting my time in talking to him. So things like that can open quite a few doors for you. Um, I always think it's it's a really good question about how daunting the task is because actually you only really realise that the further you get into telling the story. You start out quite naively. You don't realise how immense it is. Maybe that's just with your first biography particularly. I'm probably more aware of it with this second one I'm, I'm doing now. With the first one, if I'd known how vast it was at the outset, I probably would have been really daunted. But I, I was actually probably laughably naive and I just kind of went into it quite blind. Um, I was also probably quite naive about what kind of character he was. I thought he was probably a bit of a harmless rogue. Um, it turned out he was really quite a harmful rogue in some ways. And I, I uncovered some really dark stuff that if I'd known about in the first place, I might not even have gone there. Um, but by that time, I really had the momentum and I was fascinated and determined to, to tell the story. There's a, there's a, there's a couple of things, I, I, threads I want to pick up mm. there, but just um, to um, do, uh, I, I suppose, no, because I'm genuinely interested, but also I'm going to frame it in terms of um, uh, sort of uh, paying lip service to the idea of talking about craft and stuff. Mm. But I, I, I'm, I'm just sorry with all those kind of exciting threads to, to focus on the most mundane <laughs> one. But you talked about sort of those first few times when you're approaching people and I... I because I think when I've written nonfiction, I've kind of done it going, suddenly realising, oh, I, I, I guess I'm, you know, I never think of myself, I never thought of myself as being a writer when I was writing nonfiction. And yet I'm approaching people. And then at some stage you kind of think, well, maybe I am doing a book. Maybe this is what everyone who does books does. You know, I don't have a special, don't have a special certificate to say I'm a real writer. It's OK to talk to yeah. me. But I wondered if you could talk about how you were framing you know, when you haven't contacted anyone at all, mm. and you're, it's kind of almost like you've read a couple of books and then you're reading another one because I'm interested and maybe you haven't even really admitted it to yourself that you're writing a book yet or you haven't decided that. Mm. When you first take the first step to contact someone, mm. how, what did you think you were doing in terms of project? Was it a project? And... How did you frame it to them? I'm just thinking in terms of anyone listening who might, you know, someday want to write something nonfiction. You know, what? How do you do that first start when you, when you're starting out? And you know, that person might say, "Well, are you writing a book?" And you go, "Actually, you're the only person in the world I've emailed about." You know, that's I guess that's what 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 was what was that process like when you first started? It's a really interesting question. It's making me delve back about ten years to when I started that book and try to think how I did it. I mean, I think basically what I did was when I wrote an email or a letter to someone and just since I mentioned it, writing a letter can go down really well. Um, you know, people are bombarded with emails and particularly the, the older generation as well. If you write someone a letter, uh, I think it shows a little more care and efforts and I've often found people respond better to a, you know, a letter than one of the hundred emails they get every day. Um, but mm, let's think. I think showing in your approach that you've really thought already about how to tell that story 
why you are the person to tell it. Maybe give a couple of details that show why you connect with the, the story. Um, now, you may have to win over a certain amount of scepticism. There might be, yeah, you might have to win them over a little. It's just like, yeah, the story may be worth telling, but are you the person to tell it? Um, because I'm just thinking you, you know, you, you know, by your own ad- ad- admission, you weren't about in 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 the no. in the time that you're you're writing about. You know, he was dead. He died before you were yep. born. Um, you are yep. not a with with the greatest respect. You are a, a, a not a world famous um, musician or celebrity. No. <laughs> um, so you know, the, this is not you know these aren't the celebrity circles you were moving no. in, <laughs> and so. What, how were you how were you framing that when you approached I think there were probably two things one was that I was showing that I did feel although I wasn't literally connected to that world that I had a substantial interest in it and that I could show that I I knew a bit about the various worlds that he moved in and I could tailor that to the person I was writing to so you know if it was an artist I was writing to I, I could play out that angle or a musician or a gangster um you know i could say i know that he knew such and such and you 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 knew him in this way the other thing that i think is important is to show the recipients of your approach that you have tailored the approach personally to them it's not just a generic templated letter or email that you've fired off where you've just filled in their name at the top um show that you've put your research in and you're writing to them because you know that you knew you know that they knew your subject in this time and place, you're particularly interested to know what they can say about this aspect of their life, um, as well as their general impressions. So I think really tailoring tailoring the approach to the individual and displaying your own credentials, I think those are the, are the key aspects of an approach letter or email. And, where, and can I ask, I suppose, well, could you talk about a couple of those? I mean, let's go into the book itself and just f- flesh it out a bit, you know, who this person was and maybe a couple of the people you spoke to. Yeah. And then we can kind of, I'll circle back to, to more things about craft. I, and, and I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I suppose that I'm also asking because I'm really, really interested in this aspect of the, of, I, I, I guess I suppose the kind of like legwork yeah. of the donkey work of speaking to people. And I, I'm saying it as if it's really mundane, but of course it's super interesting, but it's, um, it that it's it, it's it's fascinating to me because it's the bit that was never talked about by anyone and i had to kind of figure out yeah. I, you know i read books but i had to figure out what i was doing myself and um it's really it's just fa- i love talking to people about how they did it but um could you talk a bit about um who he was and maybe a couple of the people you ended up speaking to to kind of start giving some kind of putting some meat on the bones of this mercurial story okay um let's think i mean he was so david lipfenoff was a character who was at large in London in the 1950s and 60s. Well, he lived from 1928 to 1975, um, born in the Jewish East End of London, gravitated across to West London as early as he could, really. He starts cropping up in in Chelsea and Mayfair and Knightsbridge from the early 50s onwards. At the same time, he's also in Soho. Um, he was someone who and befriended the the artistic sets, the Chelsea set of kind of 
post-war young aristocrats in the 1950s. Um, but he also mixed with the underworld. So from the early 60s onwards, he was in the Kratwins circle. Um, his Probably his strongest bond with Ronnie Cray was that they were both gay and they both... Um, you know, they shared boyfriends. They came into a kind of horrible rivalry in the end over a boyfriend they were both kind of vi vying for. Um, so he was someone who, who moved between the underworld, the kind of the gay world, which necessarily mixed with the underworld or in illicit spaces at that time, pre-1967, before the decriminalisation of homosexuality. Um, he was in the rock and roll world, and he's kind of moving between all these all these different spheres of London and mixing things up and connecting people to each other and kind of sparking these fruitful, interesting connections. And all of that is encapsulated in performance, which is a film that, that shows the way in which those worlds, the bohemian world and the rock and roll world and the, the criminal underworld all intersect. Um, so he's... He's fascinating in that respect. Um, I think he connected, I, I connected with him because I realised that so many of my existing seemingly diverse interests coalesced in this one weird character. They were kind of all bundled up together. So I could talk about art. I could talk about the Jewish East End of London. I could talk about rock music. Um, all of these things. I, mean, I had a bit of an interest in in the criminal underworld as well. Not, you know, I'm not remotely of that world, but I, I guess I. You know. Well, it sounds suspicious when you say it like that. But, <laughs> but I had, um, you know, I think I must have seen the the Cray Twins film with the Kemp brothers um, when I was a teenager, and I found that interesting. And you know, that's just the whole legend of of their world. And having, I was born in the East End of London, although. We've, grew up in Norfolk but I've always had an interest in it um there's just lots of things there in his story that all you know all came together that I was already interested in I thought well by writing about this man I can write about art I can write about rock music I can write about the pre-war blues which I've always loved I can write about film and so many things through the prism of this one really strange man who also fascinates me because people say it's impossible to tell his story. Um, and as I say, I, I thought maybe with a bit of journalistic nous and doggedness, I, I could actually, I possibly could do that. And it transpired that I could. Um, the other thing, though, is that he's, he's saying that how immense and daunting a person's life is. And it is. I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? You can't. The more you get into it, the more you realise that everyone is, you know, so multifaceted that um, the more you dig into their lives, you can only really start establishing general themes. And there will always be moments where people, because people are so paradoxical, something will come up sooner or later that seems entirely contradictory or out of character and that throws you and makes you think, I thought I had this guy pinned down. Um, actually, I didn't know him at all. I don't know him at all, do I? Um, especially if, in my case, as in my case, I didn't know him. Um, it might be slightly different if you're writing about someone that you did know or had had some dealings with. But people are, are so mysterious, whether you know them or not, really. And I find that absolutely fascinating.
So it's just trying to solidify people and flesh them out and make them three-dimensional and make them plausible, even though people can be paradoxical and contradictory. I think what you want to do is establish a kind of narrative chain and patterns of behavior that make you feel and make the reader feel that you have got this distinct sense of who this person was and how they behaved and why they behaved in the way that they did. Does that make sense? I think, yeah, it does. I think you do a good job of um, copying to your own fit, like not, I, I think like having a kind of level of authorial subjectivity yeah. really helps with the story mm. of going, of, of basically going, you know, all oh, this kind of like this confused me because I had thought this or this was the kind of my working model of who I was looking at. And then this that I think that yeah. makes it a lot better than trying to write a Wikipedia entry, you know, that gives a kind of like unified narrative because then we're kind of invited in on the process yep. and then it becomes a process mm -hmm. and it becomes you use the word you use the word quest mm -hmm. but um you know it becomes a little detective story as well and we're actually sort of invited in as part of the hunt for this and mm. any any kind of wrinkle instead of becoming a problem becomes sort of interesting data point and i think that sort of is, is why you know i think then everyone else can kind of join in and and by make by flagging up the subjectivity i feel like you almost give us enough room to come to our own conclusions alongside that that might not be the same do you know what i mean because we can see where the author's opinion exists alongside the facts that they're presenting yeah i think that puts it really well i think the most interesting non-fiction books are probably the ones where the reader feels that they have got a bit of scope to come up with their own conclusions instead of having you know a very clear simplistic reduced narrative thrust upon them you know what makes book interesting is what you work out from it in in your own head or it's certainly one of the things isn't it um so yeah i think the fact that I was a little hesitant in places and I acknowledged the difficulties, it struck me quite early on that that was a way of making the book interesting. On the one hand, if I were to write a book of irreducible facts about David Litvinoff, it probably wouldn't be a book, it would be a pamphlet. Um, but also that actually discussing the difficulties was symptomatic of the man, I guess, um, because it showed how differently he, he performed in different arenas, how he was different things to different people. Um, and he compartmentalized his life in a way that I found really interesting. Um, you know, one of the themes of the book was performance with a capital P as in the film, but with a lowercase p, as in the fact that he was compelled to be a performer. And I think there were at least two aspects of his life that compelled him to perform. One was being gay at a time when you had to hide that. Um, so he had to kind of, he had to in some way hide who he was. But actually, one of the interesting things was that he didn't really. He actually kind of, he ramped it up. He was really defiant and out and proud in a way that I found to be one of his more admirable qualities 
but you have that camp thing there that which is a performance in itself of um of defiantly saying you know this is who i am like it or lump it um the, the jewish thing as well i think was a there was a kind of performance there he performed he performed jewish if you like um as a kind of preemptive strike i think moving in what could often be quite anti-semitic circles in uh, whether in the underworld or in the upper classes um he likes to get his retaliation in early um one of his good friends an artist called nigel weymouth who was a great help to me lovely man and a wonderful artist he remembered Litvinoff going into a cafe on the king's road called the the picasso um and Litvinoff would bowl in there nigel said and announce himself to the gathered young public schoolboys and say hello my name's david Litvinoff. i'm jewish and homosexual and that was it he would get his kind of you know he would absolutely disarm them by by getting both those things in there first it was all a, a great performance um so yeah that's a, a roundabout way of saying that he one of the fascinating things about him was that he was he was a real performer um and he could be different things in different places and talking to different people he would get such different facets of his personality that um it really it made the quest and i became quite ambivalent about that word um it's become a little hackneyed i think but the quest to tell his story um ended up really becoming quite um yeah it, it kind of wove around all over the place and there were times that felt like dead ends um but they were all part of the process in the end i've got another big question yeah. which is given as you start to acquire stuff and i suppose this must be what it's like writing a phd as well but where you start acquiring more and more and you go from thinking oh i could write something about this i'll just speak to such and such and then you realize oh now i'm going to need to know more and then you start to feel a responsibility and then you start wanting to be thorough and then you kind of you talked to lots of people and you think well i don't want to let them down mm -hmm. You know, I want. What do want to? You know, I've I've said to them I'm the person to talk that, to write about that's this. That's important. Yeah, yeah. So how how do you work out what to cut? Because you must have had way more with all these transcripts of conversations, all this stuff you could have written about, and then the era and the context and what came before that led in that that that, that set the stage for this. All the different famous people these kind of threads of culture that wind around the world that then led to things later down the line everyone you spoke to you know because you're dealing with it decades later there are postscripts to all their stories and to the places there's geographic context mm. how do you take that and go i'm going to use this and not that i'm going to take this and not that um yeah especially given a subject where there's been an element of myth making there's been an element of perhaps tall tales or not including some mundane detail that maybe makes not as good a story but kind of grounds it how did you deal with that because i imagine that that's well i'm i'm saying this i'm, I'm not asking for a friend i find this kind of thing incredibly difficult not to just throw the kitchen sink yeah. <laughs> um Oh gosh, and it's a really good question, and it's um, I think you do it rather instinctively, uh, which is a an awful answer in a way because 
No, it's not because you were, but you've got a background in journalism yeah. and you were saying that you went to the desk and you had to go, you had to, you, as you were walking back from the court, yep. you had to be getting your first line yep. because someone was about going to jump on you and say, what's the story? Right. So I, I feel like that instinct is maybe has come from actually quite a lot of years of training. Yeah, perhaps, actually, I think um, when I say instinct, it's probably an instinct that developed through years of journalistic practice um, to the point where it felt quite natural. But actually, it was something that I had developed through quickly having to quickly tell stories. So quickly identify what was germane and what was what was irrelevant, you know, sifting the wheat from the chaff, um, deciding what the story was. Um, so I think think um, you quite quickly pick up on what you think the narrative is, um, what the themes of that narrative are, and you start thinking, okay, so once you've got those themes in place, the material that you uncover, you start thinking, well, does this bolster the narrative that I'm telling? If it doesn't produce something hugely fascinating that re-roots the narrative and makes me kind of rip it all up and think okay the fundamental story here is different then either it attaches to the narrative i have in mind or it doesn't um i suppose i had two narratives going on in that book one was lipfnoff's biographical story and one was the story of my trying to tell his story um the former being the more important and, and mine being supplementary to that um but really if um if the details that I was finding were if they were kind of by the way then you, when you're telling a story you know you can you can do a by the way every now and then can't you but you don't want it to be kind of every page or if you're telling a story orally you don't want to break off every few sentences to say by the way this by the way that you want to keep either telling the narrative or establishing the context that makes the narrative plausible and comprehensible um so that's where the scene setting comes in um now to an extent that's down to taste isn't this and i know I mean, I've, fortunately i had most of the reviews of my book were were kind and you know made me feel that i i felt vindicated in writing it there was one that felt that the book um could have been edited fairly significantly thankfully he was in a minority but clearly that is a an opinion that some people have um, and it comes down to your interest in the story and the, the worlds I was writing about I think um, whether you have that existing interest in the worlds that I was trying to flesh out and if you don't then you probably don't have much appetite for having those worlds fleshed out in which case you might wonder why those people read the book and I have read some of the Amazon reviews and thought why the hell did you ever read this book in the first place okay yeah. um, <laughs> um I think, yeah, it's mostly once you've developed a kind of nose for what the story is, then you start sensing, does this information help me tell the story? Does it not? And now and then you can throw in some supplementary detail or a little kind of quirky fact that you think is just interesting in its own right as an aside. But mostly you just want to keep on telling that story, having established what your narrative spine is. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be how, really. And can you talk about um, how, when you're dealing with so many people that you actually went to speak to, yeah. um, 
I, I've spoken to a lot of like first time authors when they finish their first well, fic, and I'm talking specifically about fiction authors yeah. now when I speak to them and they write their first book and they don't imagine really anyone's going to read it you know maybe they kind of hope you know hopefully one day maybe I can get an agent but really they're writing for them because yeah. they've never been a, a published author before so probably not going to get published and then they write their second book and suddenly especially if their first book did well or had some people be nice about it they suddenly feel like some people are over their shoulder watching them and they get worried about disappointing them mm-hmm. now as a as an author a non-fiction author where you've gone to speak to people maybe people who even knew the subject you're writing about you must have had that audience in over looking over your shoulder from quite early on um, one of whom was like eric clapton you know like an, an imaginary people mm-hmm. who, well no, well real people but you who you're imagining looking and you're thinking would this person I spoke to think I've done a good job? Was was that yeah? Was that a present? Was that present for you? Usually. And how did you manage that? Especially when you might be having to describe someone's physical appearance when you meet yes. them. You know, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be weird about it. That's you know, I, you, I know you're not going to say I walked into the lobby and saw his huge mis- misshapen visage, but like, mm. still e- describing anyone physically feels like a a bit impertinent and you know how did you deal with all of that because you're not describing fictional characters and these people might see it and read it yeah i really um that was very present in my mind probably especially when i described a couple of the gangsters i met (laughs) (laughs) mad frankie fraser for example i I, um I, i gave quite a detailed description of um kind of lattice of folds and creases and wrinkles on his face um, um you know I, I was quite conscious of not wanting to be overly uncomplimentary um um yeah i mean i was very aware that there was an audience of people who had helped me a great deal um and i felt you know, that can give you a, a real imperative to keep pressing on with the book. I think that's something that a non-fiction author can really benefit from, that there are so many other people engaged in what you're doing. Well, certainly if it's a book that leans very heavily on interviews, um, you've got all these people who've given you their time and efforts and thoughts, and you really you feel beholden to them, that you really, you know, you need to repay their efforts. So when you start kind of slacking off or, you know, um, running running adrift a little bit, you think, come on, crack on, you've got this book to write and there are people out there who have helped you and you need to, you need to get the damn thing done. Um, quite aside from having a publishing contract, which you, you have a deadline for anyway. But um, So there's that. But also, yeah, the business of writing about the people that you meet. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I've probably handled that by being pretty complimentary about everyone I met. I didn't feel I had to compromise myself in doing that. You know, um, there were one or two. Well, because I guess the book wasn't wasn't necessarily about no. direct. It wasn't a piece of gotcha journalism no. where you were expo- exposing no. um, corruption in them or anything. No. So it, I suppose there were different there were different books where that might come up more. Yeah. Um, but there was one character who um, I was very fond of um uh who i was a little coy in the way that i wrote about him because he was quite delicate his mental health was 
was really poor. He's since died, but he um, was someone who had been in the newspapers not long before I met him, um, having been sectioned under the Mental Health Acts. And um, I had a dilemma over whether I mentioned that. Um, and on the one hand, I thought, well, it has a bearing on the reliability of the information he gives me because he was basically quite a fantasist um you know, in many ways a kind of lovely man but not so not a reliable narrator of his own or other people's stories i thought well you know am i am i duty bound to the reader to to tell them this man was sectioned he's you know um but i thought actually i think i can make it implicit um without writing something that will actively embarrass him, possibly further impact on his already shaky mental health. Um, I didn't want to do that. I, I liked him. I didn't want to cause him any harm at all. So in the end, the way I wrote about him, I think made it fairly apparent that he was not a very stable character. But I hope that I did it subtly enough that he still seemed sympathetic and the reader would read his quotes thinking that they're possibly not wholly reliable in factual terms, but what they were reliable in is the kind of, that he remained authoritative in describing the emotions that Litvinov provoked in him, the fondness and warmth that he felt for Litvinov, and that said something in itself. Um, it kind of brought out some of the warmth in, in Litvinov's character that I was keen to convey as a balance to some of the less sympathetic stuff that I saw elsewhere so that was that was somewhere where I had a lot of quite difficult questions to work through in terms of how I describe somebody um it's a really have tricky you, and in, sorry yeah, it's just it's really it's a really it can be quite thorny and you have to tread carefully um yeah and you don't really want to get into showing people stuff before publication either because then you can feel very you can feel compromised then. Um, and some people will ask you to see stuff and then it, you know, then it can become, <laughs> you really do feel quite compromised because you, you either end up annoying them by saying, no, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not showing anyone anything. This is, so, this is someone who says, I've given you so much help and you know, you're not going to do me the courtesy of that. Or you do and they start rewriting stuff. And, you know, um, I had a bit of that, um, but it, it didn't end up being too much of a problem in the end. But that is something that you will get if you interview a lot of people. One or two of them will, will be a little, um, yeah, slightly hard work. There's a lot of egos to manage, you know, and people want to be sure that they have been portrayed in the way that they would want to be portrayed. Um, some people become quite competitive about being seen to be close to your subject. I found that, that some he was someone, he was one of those people that I think made a lot of people feel like they were his best friend and people wanted to come across as his, as his best friend as well. And there's several people who would kind of play up their own closeness to him and do down other people's and say, oh, of course, you know, so-and-so wasn't that close to him, um, whereas I knew what was really going on. And you have to deal with a certain amount of, of that. And there's a lot of ego management that has to go on in making sure that people feel... <laughs> appreciated and that's um in the quid pro quo that goes on to an extent of them giving their time and help but in return 
wanting their story or their part of your character's story told in the way that they would approve of. You know, you have to balance that, and it can be quite a, a tricky balancing act at times. Yeah. Well, how how do the for people who haven't gone through this process when you're then in conversations with you know your editor and your publishers, what kind of process? What do they ask from for you? in from you in terms of well for example that you're that you aren't a complete fantasist and you have spoken to all these people that you claimed to and you know that you haven't just kind of made this up yeah. like was there was there did they, do they just and I'm, I'm you know I've been through this process a couple of times now so I've got some idea of certainly how my different publishers have managed this but I just wondered your from your experience you know what what does an what will an author generally be asked to produce or in a, um, when you're doing a piece of non-fiction and it comes to submitting mm. beyond the manuscript itself? That's a good question because um, I wasn't really, I wasn't asked to produce <gasps> supplementary material. Um, I think, um, I mean, I had a really good rapport with my editor, I had two editors at Cape, um, Dan Franklin and Claire Bullock. Dan did the first kind of structural edits and Claire did the line edits. Um, and Dan, I, you know, I worked closely with him from the outset. And um, when I got a, when I got a, an interview that I thought would, would particularly interest him, I would tell him and, you know, and, and afterwards I would tell him what came out of it. Um, and... You know, I suppose there's a, there's a good deal of trust that goes on in, in that respect. But um, there's you know, one critical moment, I suppose, was the pre-publication um, legal read. Um, and there were questions there that the lawyer raised that I had to I had to answer and I could show that's probably the you know the, the biggest thing in that respect I had to show that I could substantiate this or that assertion by saying yes I've got this quote from this interview that that substantiates that um, no that isn't libelous because I I have this evidence and, and that piece of evidence um, so I think that's that was probably what took care of those kind of questions yeah yeah and, and and just to say you know I, I think you know for a lot of books it doesn't come up because you might be going to you know speak to an expert on elephants about you know about the the state of kind of like elephant com conservation and there's not likely well I can think of some some ways it could be but you know there's there's not you know in elephant biology there's not likely to be defamatory material and so like a libel read wouldn't come into it but you know, I guess with some kinds of books like biography, you can quickly find, and even actually even autobiography, there's ways that you can write about your own life that touch on other people that you simply can't do. Yeah. So that's re that's really interesting mm. um, that you sort of say that that comes that came quite late um, for you yeah. in in the process. Yeah. Uh, did you did you ever sort of hear from any of the people who were fe featured in it? Um, or anyone else that knew, you know, anyone, I, I suppose you must have tried to speak to everyone you could think of, but did you ever get any feedback from those kind of people about how they felt about the book once it was complete? Did, yeah. Um, I mean, one or two of them, I did show the manuscript in advance because I wanted 
them to to give it a kind of critical read. So, um, you know, one or two of his friends read it from that point of view and thankfully were complimentary about it and also thankfully pointed out a couple of little errors. Um, that was very helpful in both respects. Um, when it came out, yeah, I, um, I had an email from Eric Clapton. That was nice. Um, the day that it got its first review, which was in the Telegraph, um, it was one of those kind of um, occasional very nice days that you have a, as an author when your book finally comes out and it got a good review in the Telegraph and then I got an email from Eric Clapton saying he just read the book and, and he really liked it. Um, so that, yeah, that felt good. Um, um, there were, yeah, a few people who I was really keen to know that I that they approved of the way I told the story. And thankfully they did. Um, you know, friends of his who whose opinion I valued. Um, I don't think I had anyone who said, no, you got him all wrong or, you know, you've been grossly unfair to me or to someone else. If people did think that, then they kept it to themselves. So, the, you know, almost all the feedback I had, thankfully, was complimentary. Um, at least, you know, in terms of the people who, who took the trouble to get in touch with me. Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews, obviously. Yeah. Let's not go there. Um, but yeah. Um, when so you said now you said that you you know if you if you'd known quite what you were getting into you might have um, felt more daunted. Yeah. Um, and I and I do think you know you make a really good point that sometimes ignorance can be a kind of a real a real boon when you're starting out on a yep. project because it means you only have to eat sort of one dinner at a time and not 50 of them at once. You know, yep. you just, the pipeline, you just deal with what's in front of you and you don't worry about, you know, all the different curves. But I, I wonder now you've been through the process, what do you feel in kind of going on to future nonfiction projects? What do you feel you've learned and what, what, what I suppose, you know this is an impossibly broad question so feel free to narrow it down as much as you like but what would you do differently or what lessons would you take from this that you would apply you know to future non-fiction projects yeah um let's think i mean the, the biography i'm writing now is so different in many ways it's um gone from a book that was very heavily interview researched to one where there's minimal interviewing to do because the man I'm writing about, Joseph Roth, died in 1939. Um, to my great delight, I have found someone who, who knew him. I interviewed a 91-year-old man who was born in 1930, um, and, or 1929 even, um, and he remembered meeting Roth in 1939, a few weeks before Roth died. Um, I was absolutely thrilled to get that. Um, you know, it's this now elderly man looking back to his boyhood and describing his father's friend, Joseph Roth, who he met for a few days in Paris. Um, but that's been the exception rather than the rule that this book is far more, um, you know, it's, it's far more based on reading and to an extent i would i was going to say archival research but the circumstances over the last year have obviously made that very difficult but there's still some archival research i'd like to do when i can um and kind of footstepping which is something 
I thought I might talk a bit more about in a bit, like going to locations and bringing a character's life to life through going to the places that they inhabited. So with Roth, for example, I think I learned from the Lipfinoff book how well that can work in terms of making your prose atmospheric and bringing your subject to life through the places that they inhabited. So whereas it was mostly different parts of London, um, but also Wales and also Australia, I went to for the Lipfinoff book. Um, with Roth, um, the only research trip I've done so far was to the Ukraine. I went to Lviv and to the town where he grew up, which is called Brody. Um, I went there nearly two years ago now, um, back in the golden days when one could travel overseas quite easily. Um, hmm. And so I, I really learned from the first book, something I suppose I already knew to an extent from, from writing features for the newspaper, that telling stories through evoking place can really help when to, to describe the stories of the people you're writing about. Um, what else did I learn from the previous one? I suppose there were probably a few false starts I went down that hopefully I haven't gone down this time. Um, um, and yeah, maybe losing that naivety, which, as you say, in a way, it can be a boon. Um, not to know just how huge a task it, it is that you take on when you begin uh, a big nonfiction book. I think of it a little like you're climbing a mountain. And I suppose when you climb a mountain, you don't constantly look up at the peak. Um, you you take it one step at a time. You look at the next foothold and the next handhold and you go up step by step, don't you? So, you know, when you're writing your opening chapter, yeah, I think you want to know where you think your story is leading. To mix my metaphors terribly, it's a bit like you're setting out on a bridge. Your narrative is like a bridge and you don't want to set out on a bridge that isn't attached to the other side of the chasm. This is awful mixing of metaphors, but to go back... You can have bridges yeah. in... There are alpine bridges. Alpine bridges between mountains, yeah. yeah. Um, but to go back to my mountain, um, I think first draft particularly, it's like you're climbing that mountain in the dark because you're not even sure how huge it is. Um, you know, so you're just kind of shining your torchlight going from one step to the next to the next. And maybe the subsequent drafts, then you've got a sense of how big... The mountain is um and that's when you know you've got some sense of of how to get through the roots and you know how to move from a to b but that first draft it's um i think the main thing that you learn from your first book that you take into your second or subsequent books is i can do this even when it feels like i can't do this you know that you can because you've done it before and i've had a few moments like that with this book particularly in, in the first half, I suppose, where I've thought, my God, I've been working on this so long and I've, I've worked so hard and I've done so much and I'm not even halfway through yet. Um, yeah. I think the the halfway mark or what you imagine to be the halfway mark when you have a, a rough word count in mind, don't you, when you start, um, that halfway mark is, is a great fulcrum point. And once you cross this and you think, well, I think I'm, you know, I've done more now than I have to do. Psychologically, that's great. Um, and it can give you a bit more momentum and just that knowledge that I've done more already than I than I have left to do. I can do this. I can, and you just keep pressing on and pressing on. And where I am now with this current book is um, 
I'm 100,000 words into the first draft with, I think, 20, 25,000 more to write. That's first draft, and then I want to lose maybe 10,000 words in the edit. Um, we will see. Um, so to go back to your earlier question as well, I mean, it's, it's that balance, isn't it, between what becomes apparent to you yourself as the author of what is editable, but also there being the point where you have to hand it over to your editor and say, I think I've done what I can here um, for now. What do you think? Because, um, you know, writing is... Such a... Because your relationship to the subject is such yeah. that what is not the, the the stuff that is novel to a reader coming up to the subject new yep. is not novel to right. you uh and may in fact be some of the best told stories whereas some often you know if you've got like oh gosh i've spoken to this person that no one else spoke to or they told me this which contradicts a previous well-known story about this person that i know yep. but you know that's like really interesting on a kind of inside baseball kind of like but but is is but does the read does the reader know that yeah you know, it's such a tricky thing i think that's a really good point uh, i think sometimes the things that you think are, are the great things about your book are not necessarily to an objective reader the great things about your book but um sometimes it can just be something you're really pleased to have discovered because you spent an entire day in an archive and then you finally found something that made the day worthwhile at, you know, 10 minutes before the archive was about to close. Um, and you think, yeah, I knew it was worthwhile. Um, I think probably the the thing with the last book that the readers and I agreed on was the stuff that I turned up about how performance, the film, was so directly lifted from incidents in Litvinov's life. I was, I was pleased to show that um yeah but otherwise yeah often it's um you never know what a reader is really reading your book for they all come at it from their own angle don't they we, we all do um i mean sometimes as i say you wonder why someone reads your book at all when they have apparently so little interest in your subjects but you think um why did you how many hoops did you have to go through between deciding to buy this book, deciding to persevere with it, and then deciding that, you know, it's your task to then inform other people out there that this is a book to be avoided by by filing a review on Amazon, you know. It's, um, yeah, it's a little perplexing at times, but thankfully, most of the feedback has been has been good. Sorry, that's veered wildly from the, the question that you asked me. <laughs> no, no, that's a really, no, that's really, that's really, no, that's, 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 um, that's really, really helpful. And uh, I, I think that kind of like covers quite a lot of the, yeah, the kind of like the kind of messiness of it, really. Yeah. Um, I was wondering just to sort of um, round things off. I, I know you touched on it briefly, but I wondered if you could go on just a little bit more detail on what footstepping yeah. is and how you choose your target for that. Okay. Um, let me think how to answer that. Yeah. Um, you want to choose locations that you can convey with atmosphere that are places that you know your character inhabited um, and that the places 
say something about who your character was um and i think you want to do that um in ways that's right for several of the senses something i often say to to my creative non-fiction students I, I teach a course in this um is you know to write for several of the senses and don't just show the reader a scene that they're looking at try to immerse them in the scene so that they're not just seeing it but they're hearing it and they're smelling it and then maybe they're feeling it uh, you don't want to give them sensory overload you know, but um you want to give them at least a couple of the of the sensory perceptions that one would have going into a scene um you know if we go into a place we suss it out don't we um we look for things that might be perceived as threats we look at things that are familiar that can make us feel at home there um you want to give someone that sense of going into a place um and because place isn't just physical landscape is it it's, it's character it's the character of a location how it makes people feel what roles it plays it's not just a backdrop for actions it can inform actions um one's surroundings can provoke feelings that in turn can suggest courses of action how people feel can then influence their behavior so place can interrelate with character as a potential catalyst for your narrative um it can hint at your character's lifestyle all kinds of things like that um but i think you want a few deft strokes really um in terms of the just the practicalities of footstepping i always think you want to go to places alone you don't want to feel at all beholden to a friend who may have tagged along with you and after 10 or 15 minutes of you loitering on a street where your subject lived 50 years ago you might notice them looking at their watch or kind of gazing around in a rather bored impatient fashion you don't want to feel at all beholden to anyone else you want to be able to go for somewhere as long as you as long as it takes for you to get what you need from it um which is i would say one good rule of thumb i find is to be able to picture it with your eyes closed um obviously you don't want to stand in the middle of a busy street with your eyes closed but at least you know just really have that sense that it has sunk into to your mind sunk into your memory um you take lots of photos as well for future reference um take notes while you're there you know once you've spent a a good while absorbing the atmosphere then 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 you repair to a local cafe and you write up your notes and you have a you know kind of uh, you splurge out whatever's on your mind um and try to to get it down that way um i think there's also another point which is on a tangent comes to me um i like some of jack kerouac's rules for writing not all of them some of them are you know kind of indulgence beat nonsense but one or two of them are quite useful one of them that i like to bear in mind is number 22 which is don't think of words when you stop but to see picture better um as kerouac puts it so when you're writing don't and you run into a dead end don't pause and then you know you gaze out your window or you kind of stare at your wall and start trying to think of fine words um don't think of the words try to think of the picture and if you can think of the picture um then the words with luck should present themselves that's something i find quite useful um yeah so 
what else with with foot stepping? Um, I think going to a diversity of places. Um, you want to go to urban locations. You want to go to rural locations. You want to give the reader a sense of going between different settings. You know, if that's um, if that is representative of your subject's life. If the person you're writing about is hugely urban character, then then so be it. But one thing I I hope worked quite well in the David Litvinoff book, and I I hope will work in in the Roth book again. Is a contrast between urban and rural settings. So Lipfinoff was an incredibly metropolitan character, you know, coming out of this very intense East End setting where you had all these people who were, you know, really kind of jam-packed together, living in these almost slums where you had to really compete for attention. And there was a whole culture of jostling for position getting the first and last word in, you know, vying for attention because it was a, you know, a very intense culture and you had to jostle your way out of, out of the ghetto, if you like. Um, you had that, but as an adjunct to that, um, you had, well, he went to Wales. He had to go on the run after performance came out because he was threatened by some gangsters who were not very amused by him putting his underworld experiences on the silver screen in this, big film starring Mick Jagger you know it was it was an incredibly foolhardy thing for him to do really and so about 1906 well end of the 60s the film comes out 1970 it comes out um, and he has to scarper off to a little remote rural village in West Wales called Llandowy Brevi so I went off and uh, I visited the little stone cottage where he holed himself up for a year while he was hiding from gangsters. And it's surrounded by fields and meadows and this kind of beautiful rural idyllic setting, which was a million miles away from his natural habitats. But to be able to describe that really said something about um, how far he had had to remove himself in order to escape from the possible consequences of his actions. So I really enjoyed going around that part of Wales and and describing the the countryside there. Um, and I also really enjoyed going around the different parts of London and trying to convey the intensity um, and the kind of griminess and urban grit um, that informed so much of his life. I suppose doing that also just gives you a sense of permission as well, like... It does just help subtly build your own sense of maybe authority is putting it too strongly, but that you have gone and done the work. You did go to the place yep. and it just gives you that extra bit of confidence. And, and maybe that comes out in your writing that you feel, OK, well, I can commit to this yep. and I can say this. Yep. And with all the kind of information that you're getting in second hand to have those kind of primary sources of having been there yeah. and say, oh, I went here and stuff like that. And maybe when you're doing an interview with someone and you can mention it, mm. um, it just yeah, to yourself and to others makes you seem serious, that's a, I guess. That's a great point. It, yeah, it really does. Um, and I'm not sure I'd actually articulated that to myself, but it, it really, on the one hand for yourself, it gives you purchase on the subject. If... Um, if it's someone, if you're writing a biography of someone who you, you never met, you know at least that you've put the legwork in and you've gone to the places they inhabited and you can write about the streets that they roamed as a kid, 
um, with a fair degree of authority. Obviously, places change, but you know there are um, there are still common qualities that you can convey. Um, but yeah, also just in terms of presenting yourself as plausible to your interviewees, it can really work to say to them. Well, I suppose the one that showed willing on my part with the last book was that I went to Australia. Um, to, mm. <laughs> this was before I got the book deal, but um, Jonathan Cape were interested, but weren't yet quite sure if I could pull it off. But everyone who I interviewed or spoke to at that early stage said, if you're going to write about Litvinoff, then you need to interview Martin Sharp, who was an Australian pop artist. Um he was a fascinating, lovely man, a very talented pop artist. Um, possibly his most familiar work would be that he designed the album cover for the Cream album, Disraeli Gears. He was a friend of Eric Clapton's and he you know, he was kind of moving in that whole scene, that which, which was where Litvinoff knew him as well. And people said, you really need to interview Martin. Um, and by that time, he was seriously ill with emphysema and he'd had a stroke and he was Australian and he'd been for some years he'd been back in Sydney and he wasn't going to be leaving Sydney um and he his condition was such that he couldn't really speak for length on the phone and you don't really in the first place get such a rapport with people on the phone I also knew that he owned a large collection of Litvinoff's reel-to-reel music tapes which were a really important thing for understanding him um so i took the plunge and i self-funded a trip out to australia for a few days um and um that absolutely paid dividends not only in terms of persuading the would-be possible publisher that um i could do this and um and sure enough i got a deal fairly soon after that but also in terms of showing dedication to the people that I was going on to interview. Um, I think people in London probably figured that if I'd been from England to Australia, um, that probably showed that uh, um, it was worth their while meeting me for an interview. And, you know, I probably was sufficiently committed to this project that they wouldn't be wasting their time. Well, that's that's a. I think that's a really, really exciting, and I, I, I love that's a great sort of note to end on. Really, I mean, obviously, not everyone. Yeah. Not saying that everyone needs to fly to Australia <laughs> to do their book, but that kind of, uh, um, kind of, you know, that that you don't have to kind of wait for permission. That you can kind of go ahead and start doing stuff, whatever that looks like for you, and that that starts giving you a sense of authority and that starts building momentum. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking about this, Kieran. I really, really enjoyed hearing about it and I found it very inspiring, actually, and really, really interesting. It's made me want to kind of go away and think about what my next uh, folly is to write about. Thank really. you for asking me, um, Tim, and thank you for asking brilliant questions. Really, really interesting questions, you know, which, among other things, have made me think afresh about a, a book that came out five years ago and that I I thought I had thought about from every angle and yet um, your intelligent original questioning has revealed that that was not actually the case so thank you well if for everyone listening if you'd like a copy there'll be a uh, there's a link in the uh, show notes um, that you'll be able to uh, click on and uh, get a uh, copy for yourself and um, for everyone listening thanks for listening and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing